Romans chapter 10. From time to time throughout history, uh, we've, heard, we've all heard messages that have inspired us, that have made us stand up and take notice of them. You can point to Winston Churchill and some of the messages he's made, Martin Luther King Jr., Ronald Reagan, things like that. But there has never been a greater message given to the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nor will there ever be one that's greater than that. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at the very heart of our study here in the book of Romans. And Paul has presented it clearly, and he's presented it in very great detail. If we read, in it we read that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the only tool, the only means by which anyone is saved. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel about Jesus Christ. It came to us through Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end to all that the gospel entails. A person can only be saved, can only be declared to be righteous by the one holy God by coming to him through the message of the gospel. As believers, those who have believed in the gospel message and have been justified by God, Paul has made it clear that we have been put to death to our sins and raised up to new life in Christ. We are now being sanctified, a day-by-day process that is continually transforming us, maturing us, and equipping us for service to our Lord. And we now stand in hope, a hope that we didn't have before, a hope that the unbeliever does not have. We have hope in the glory that awaits us, that is in store for us someday. We know what is coming in the future. As his children, as the ones whom he has justified and called to himself in saving faith, there is absolutely nothing that anyone can do, including ourselves, that can remove us from that relationship with him, from being in his family, or prevent us from someday being with him in glory. That is the hope that we have as believers. And this is not according to anything that we did. We can't boast about it in our own situation, but because we are the ones that he has called to place our faith and trust in him. All of that was detailed for us in the previous chapters that we've been through in the book of Romans. And now, in our current section that we find ourselves in, from chapters 9 through, uh, well, chapters 9 and 10, but really chapters 9 through 11 is the section, we see that God is the one who calls according to his good pleasure. But it is still man's responsibility to place his faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the message that God has revealed. This section is primarily detailing here about the Jews, the nation of Israel, dealing with how this is all applying to them and and the promises of God, how this applies to them. They had rejected their Messiah. God had chosen them as a nation, but yet they had rejected the revelation of God, by and large. And when we say that Israel rejected them, we're not saying that every single Jew rejected them, because here we have Paul, who was a Jew, that is writing all this. But by and large, the nation of Israel had rejected their Messiah. And the question that we're seeking to answer here is, what does this mean for them? Has God rejected them in return? Has he cut them off for all eternity? 
And Paul is showing us here in these, ca- in these chapters that that is not the case. That just because God was now offering salvation to the Gentiles, the gospel was now going to the Gentile nations. Remember, Paul himself, and we'll see this in the next chapter, is the apostle to the Gentiles. It was going to the Gentiles, but it doesn't mean that the plans and the promises that were given to Israel have been removed from them. And we keep mentioning this, but it's important to note because there are so many people that for so long are thinking this to be the case and have made the case that that's what's going on, but that's not it. So what is Israel's situation? Paul has been showing that this starting in the last verses of chapter 9 and continuing into chapter 10, that Israel has willfully chosen to disobey the revelation of God, claiming to be zealous for God, having a zeal for God, they have held on to their own standard of righteousness and failed to subject themselves to the true standard of righteousness, the righteousness of God. And Israel should have known better. They of all people should have known better. They have been given every privilege by God, every law, every commandment, every promise. And yet they refused to recognize their own Messiah when he came to them. They failed to yield to the gospel that is at the very heart of this book that we're studying, the very heart of salvation, the word of faith that Paul talked about in verse 8 of this chapter, that he was preaching, that the other apostles were preaching. In our last study, we looked at verses 9 through 13 of chapter 10, where we saw that what the word of faith entailed, what the gospel entailed, and it entailed believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ made possible through his resurrection to a new life. And we talked about how the very possibility of our salvation hinges on the resurrection. If Christ hadn't been raised, then we would still be lost in our sins. And also it entails confessing him, submitting our lives to him, acknowledging that he is Lord of our lives. We no longer belong to ourselves. We tried that. That was the situation that we were in before, where we were just living for ourselves. And that's the path that we were on prior to believing in the gospel. But that was the path that led only to condemnation, only to hell. And it was disastrous for us. But fortunately, God provided a way out. A way for us to turn ourselves over to Him and live a new life in Christ by believing, putting our faith in the gospel. And who is it that the gospel is available to? He said in verse 4, to everyone who believes. Verse 13, to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. He was talking about Jew and Gentile, Jew or Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is available to all. It is a universal invitation. It is the only means by which anyone can be saved. And everyone is invited to partake in the gospel. It is truly the most important message that has ever been given to the world. And now that, a Paul, now that Paul has established that, what he's going to do in the final verses of, these chap- of this chapter is return to showing how Israel has rejected this opportunity. The opportunity that they have been given to accept and believe in the gospel. And as a part of their rejection of every opportunity that God has given them, 
They have refused to believe the free gift of salvation that has been graciously offered to them and they, as they rejected the Messiah that they had been so anxiously anticipating. He came and they missed him. Now to start off with this explanation, here in verses 14 through 15, Paul is going to ask a series of questions that will show the steps of, that, that take place in salvation, a path to salvation, if you will. And we're going to see how he uses this to show how Israel, how the Jews stumbled along this path. Verse 14 picks up where we left off in verse 13. And verse 13 said, But for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, this is that universal invitation that we mentioned. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's a very simple concept, and it applies to whoever will respond. He just pointed out that Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, doesn't matter. Call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. So he's pointing this out because of what he he started talking about there at the end of chapter 9, how Israel had failed to believe, but the Gentiles did believe. They accepted the very gospel message that Israel had rejected. And so it's not as if the gospel failed. It's not as if there was a problem with the message. It worked for the Gentiles. They believed. They were saved. The majority of those in the church at Rome were a testimony to the fact that the gospel was effective because the majority of those in Rome were Gentiles. So it's not as if the invitation failed, that they weren't invited. There's no partiality. The same Lord is Lord of all. Whoever believes will not be disappointed. So the failure must be found somewhere else. And so Paul is going to go through this list of questions to try to narrow this down for us. So he says in verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Then in verse 15 he says, How will they preach unless they are sent? So what Paul is doing here is showing the application of the gospel message, but he puts it, here in reverse order. Starting from the end when someone calls out to God and moving backwards to the sending of those that share the message, the preacher. So the first thing we see, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Now it's true that whoever calls, makes this call, will be saved. But what we need to realize is that for someone to call upon God for salvation, they must first believe they don't believe in him, how or why would they call out to him? That's really what Paul is asking here. Calling out to God is an expression of what is in the heart. Just as we saw last time, we talked about with confession, with confessing him as Lord. We confess him with our mouths because we believe in him with our hearts. So here, the one who is being saved calls out to God because he has believed in him with his heart. So that's why, one of the reasons why rote repetition in in religious practices doesn't work, right? I mean, without true belief, it's meaningless, right? I can hand somebody a piece of paper, I I can write on it, God save me a wretched sinner. And I can hand it to somebody and say, here, say this. And they say, God save me a wretched sinner. And technically speaking, somebody could say, well, see, they called out to God. You gave them a piece of paper, they said it, they said what was on it, they called out to God, therefore they meet this criterion. It's here in verse 13. They called out to God, now they're saved. Is that how it works? 
That's not how it works. Just saying the words without true belief, that's nothing. That's what Paul was talking about here. Calling out to God, confessing Him, turning from sin, calling Him Lord, that's all a matter of the heart, of true belief. Someone who doesn't believe, you can't expect them to call out to Him. It's only when they come to realize who God is, what He has done, that they can trust in Him and truly call out to Him for salvation. So calling is dependent upon belief. But what must come before belief? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How do they come to the point where they believe in Him? They have to hear, right? They can't believe it unless they've heard it. Someone you've never met, you're out on the street, someone you've never met walks up to you, taps you on the shoulder, you turn around, you don't know this person, and they just look you straight in the face and they say, do you believe? What are you going to say? What's the question? How are you going to respond to them? Believe what, right? And they might respond, well, so you don't believe? What's missing there? You don't know what they're talking about, right? What's missing is that they need to tell you what it is that you're supposed to be believing or not believing in. You can't believe it unless you know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, or you don't know what it is unless they tell you. So no one is going to call out to God or believe in Christ who has never heard the gospel message. The knowledge of the gospel is essential to salvation. At the start of the letter, Paul said it's the power of God for salvation. That's what the gospel is. So salvation doesn't occur where the word of God has not been communicated in some way, which is why evangelism, why missions, telling people about the gospel is so important. That's why it's so vital for those of us who have, who have called out to God who have believed in Him, who have heard His Word, take that Word and present it to others as well so that they have the same opportunity to believe that we had. And that's exactly the point of Paul's next question. How will they hear without a preacher? In order for them to hear, there must be a preacher. Someone must preach the gospel to them. Now, the word for preacher is simply a word meaning to herald or to proclaim. It's, this is not an official title. This is not saying that the only, only the teaching pastor, only, only Josh is the one that can share the gospel with anybody. That's not what it's saying. But it's a word meaning that in order for someone to hear the message, there must be someone to proclaim it to them, to tell it to them. This is the means by which God has chosen to reveal his gospel to people everywhere through human intermediaries, through us. God doesn't proclaim his gospel with a voice from heaven. Unbelievers aren't inundated with God's voice in their heads. No, he's left this part up to us. This is our job. As ones entrusted with his divine plan of salvation, it is through us that they will hear the gospel. Well, you might say, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Maybe not, but you are a child of God. And all around you every day, there are lost people who desperately need to hear the gospel. 
How are they going to hear without anybody proclaiming the message to them? What if you say, well, I'll just bring them to church. What if they don't come to church with you? What if they don't read the book or the tract that you give them? You're at their house and you give them a tract and they put it down on their coffee table. And then three weeks later, you show up and you see the tract sitting right there in the exact same spot it was when you were there before. What if they don't read it? Is it just too bad? Do they not get to hear? Have you ever been on a plane stuck in a seat next to someone for hours? What's the one thing that people always worry about when you get on a plane? Oh, I hope this guy doesn't talk to me. I hope I, I, hope I can just sit in peace and quiet with this person next to me. You hear all the time about people, how people dread that. But you know what? As believers entrusted with the Word of God, the powerful truth of the Gospel, we ought to be those annoying people on the plane. It doesn't have to be just on a plane. It can be on a bus. It can be in a coffee shop. You can be waiting in a doctor's office. It can be anywhere that you are. But it needs to be something that we do, that we communicate. I don't claim to be perfect when it comes to this. In fact, I know that I fall, for, fall short in this area. I come to passages like this, and this convicts me too. But I don't think I'm alone when I say that this is an area that I need to make more of a priority in my life. Evangelism isn't something for someone else to do. It's not something that just happens by us giving money to a missions group. And then we wait to hear in the newsletter, oh, I wonder how my evangelism's going. I gave money to these missionaries, I wonder how that's going. No, we should all be involved in spreading the gospel to the lost. And that's where we go next, the next question. We have at the beginning of verse 15, the next question is, how will they preach unless they are sent? This continues to tie in with the word preacher or herald that we're talking about. By definition, someone who was a herald was someone who was sent by someone else. He didn't have a message of his own. It wasn't his own message. He was sent by the king to present a message from the king, right? We all have seen the herald, hear ye, hear ye, right? Comes and brings a message from the king. So it wasn't his own message, it was the king's message that he was bringing. An interesting thing about the herald is that he wasn't free to deviate from the message that was given. He was to proclaim the message in its entirety without adding anything to it, without taking anything away from it. If the king gave you a message, that's what you were to tell people. You don't get to add your own stuff. So who is it that has been sent? We have. You have. I have. We've been sent with the message of the gospel by God to present his message, not our own message, but his message. Sometimes it may be tempting to change it around a little bit. Sometimes it may be tempting to say, you know what? Leaving out parts, adding parts, determining what's offensive, what's not offensive, that's not our job. That's not our determination. We don't make those determinations. In fact, if you look in the book of Galatians, Paul has some very strong words, very strong warnings for those that would modify the gospel to add in or take away their own aspects to it. He says, let them be accursed. They're anathema. The gospel message itself is offensive to the lost. That's outside of our control. Right? It needs to be offensive to the lost. They've offended God. We offended God before we were saved. We needed to be offended by the truth of the gospel. 
But we need to be faithful to the message that God has given us. We need to tell them that they're sinners. We need to tell them that they're on their way to hell. That they can only be saved by trusting in the provision that God has made for them through Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Dying for their sins, being raised on the third day, paying the penalty for our sins in His own body. Providing the only means by which we can have a right relationship with God. That is the only way. Well, if we, we, if we have believed, we are witnesses to this fact. We have experienced the power of this message firsthand in our own lives. If we have placed our faith and trust in Christ. And as witnesses of this fact, what are we to do? Well, what does a witness do? Right? Well, I think we've talked about this before. Anybody that's ever seen, maybe you've never been in a courtroom, but you've seen Perry Mason or you've seen Law and Order, Right? The witness stands up there and they tell the truth, right? That's what they do. They tell what they know. They're not the ones that are arguing the case. They're not the ones that are judging the defendants or making the decisions. They are witnessing by telling the truth, what they know. And that's what we are. We are firsthand witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ. In the second half of verse 15, Paul uses an Old Testament quote to make a statement about those who do what they are sent to do. He says, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. A quote from Isaiah 52, 7, where the emphasis is on the role that the messenger plays in the bringing of the gospel. Heralds back in this day traveled by foot to wherever they were going and they brought good news. They had beautiful feet, is what it said. Simply meaning that they were welcomed. It was a beautiful sight to see them. Right? We look at that today and we say, you know, a child may be anxiously anticipating their grandparents coming. So they, they, they look out the window or they sit on their front porch and they walk down the street. And when they see the car come around the corner, they're excited because they see their grandparents' car. You know, if we don't have little kids to think about that, we maybe have the same feelings about the Amazon truck that comes down the street, right? <laughs> Bringing our package to us. But it's not what the car or what the truck represents. I mean, what it is, or just the fact that you're excited about the car or the truck, it's what it represents. It's what it's bringing. That's what the feet of the herald represent here. The preacher of God's word brings beautiful news. A testimony to the importance of our witnessing the good news of Christ. Of being the obedient instruments of God to proclaim his gospel to the lost. So why does Paul bring up this progression? From those who are sent all the way down to those who call upon God, because once again, he's relating this all back to the situation that Israel is in. He's showing the response that the Jews had to the ones who were sent and to the message that they brought. It says in verse 16, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Take note of what Paul is saying here and how it relates to what he's already said. What have we already seen as far as the offering of the gospel goes? It's all inclusive. Romans 10, verse 11, he said, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, he said, For the, name, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, he said, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. To whom does the gospel message apply? To everyone, to all. But what do we have here? They did not all heed the good news. 
when it came to Israel, the first ones to receive the gospel, it came to them, presented right to them, fell right in their laps, we could say. But what happened? It was rejected by most of them. Not all heed the good news. And this is the problem. They didn't heed it. The word for heed is a word that means to listen and to obey a command. It's a military type word. When you heed something, somebody's given you a command and you are to hear it and do it. So it's their lack of obedience to the message that's being talked about here. Back up in verse 3 of the chapter, Paul said that they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They heard the gospel. It was given to them, but they failed to respond in saving faith. They did not heed it or obey it. And this is why those in Israel are lost. To reinforce again, Paul quotes Isaiah 53.1, the first verse of a chapter dealing with the message of the coming Messiah, speaking about the substitutionary death of Christ in Isaiah 53. He says, Lord, who has believed our report? The idea is that in Isaiah's time, even though the word was preached, there were so few that believed it, that heeded it, that Isaiah has to ask this question. Has anyone believed our report? I'm out here preaching the word of God. I'm giving them your message, Lord. Is anybody listening? That's what this quote is signifying here. Just as it was back in the Old Testament, it's the same with the message of the gospel that the Jews did not all respond to, that they did not heed. Now, what's important to note is that here, belief is used synonymously with obedience. They're not the same thing, but they are inseparable, just like we saw with belief and confession. Belief and calling on God. If you believe, you confess Him as Lord, you call out to God, and you obey the gospel. A lack of belief is really a lack of obedience. God has provided a means of salvation, and the majority of mankind rejects the gospel in disobedience. The Jews were disobedient to the God that they claimed to serve and to worship. We come to verse 17, and Paul summarizes all that he's been saying to this point just by saying, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. In a nutshell, this is salvation, hearing and believing the word of Christ. Once again, we're reminded that you can't simply have faith or be a person of faith. We hear that phrase all the time. Oh, he's a person of faith. Faith for faith's sake doesn't mean anything. Everyone has faith, whether they say that they do or not. An atheist has faith. Faith is simply believing something. An atheist believes that there's no God. That's what he believes. He believes he's the master of his own destiny. Or maybe he believes in fate. Maybe he believes that when, you, when he dies, he just disappears. But that's still faith. That's still something in which he trusts in and believes. So everyone believes in something. But the question is, what is it that you must believe to be saved? The word of Christ, the very word that you have heard, the gospel that was preached to you. When it talks about the word of Christ, this can either be talking be either be saying it's the word about Christ or the word from Christ. And both are true. And we've already seen that actually in this chapter. Back up in verse 9, he said, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
This is what we believe about Christ. This is part of what we believe about him. It's a belief in who he is and what he has done for us. But we also saw in verse 14 that we believe in in what Christ has said as well. How then shall we call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? When you hear the gospel message, you are hearing the herald from the herald the word of the king himself. You are hearing the message from God, from Christ, just delivered by the herald, right? You're reading this thing that the, the king has told you to say. It's the king's words that you're hearing. Either way you look at it, the emphasis is clear. Salvation only comes through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one can be saved without hearing the gospel and responding in obedience to that message. So now he's established that faith comes through hearing the gospel. So back to the subject at hand, what about Israel? Why aren't they saved? Why don't they heed the message? Well, he brings up a couple of potential issues here. Maybe, maybe these are the case, cases. Surely it's because no one bothered to tell them the message. Maybe that's the case. He says in verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? So must be that they didn't hear. So you see, Paul is asking rhetorical questions again. He's going back to that mechanism, asking the rhetorical question, because he says next, indeed they have. He answers it right away. Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Once again, here he backs up his statement with an Old Testament quote. And, and this is because he's using Old Testament quotes because he's applying this to Israel. He's going back to what they should have known and things that they would be familiar with. And he's going to use several quotes in the final verses to make his point here. But here he's quoting from Psalm 19.4, a psalm that starts off talking about how the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And the point there is how the knowledge of God goes out throughout the whole world. He quotes this here to make the same claim about the gospel, the gospel that pertains to both Jew and Gentile. The gospel had gone out to the whole world. It had already reached both Jew and Gentile. We saw last week where Peter first went to the house of Cornelius and presented the gospel to Gentiles there. It was still spreading in Paul's day. It had gone out to Rome and he had plans to take it to Spain. And he makes a similar claim in the book of Colossians, Colossians 1.23. He said, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So the gospel has no boundaries. It was far-reaching and preached to all creation. Now that doesn't mean that every single person in Paul's day had heard it. Even today, we can't claim that every single person in the world has heard the gospel. But the point is that we can say the gospel has gone everywhere. It's gone all over the world. It's being preached far and wide everywhere on earth. And more to Paul's point, when it came to those of the nation of Israel, they are again without excuse. And that's why he brings this up. They had heard it. The Jews weren't some small tribe living in a remote forest somewhere. They were the very people that had been offered the gospel first of all. Paul had preached it. Jesus himself preached it. Jesus came to them. The apostles at Pentecost and in the early church had preached it. 
It had been heard, and they are without excuse for not having heeded it. Okay, so they heard it, so that's not it. And now the last verses, Paul heads off another possible excuse for them. Maybe this is it. Look at verse 19. He says, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Okay, so they heard it. They were, they were presented with the gospel, but, but maybe this was all new to them. Maybe this was something that they didn't know was coming. They had no knowledge of. No, that's not an excuse for them either. Why? Because of what we saw way back in Romans 9, the very first verses, they had been given every privilege, every teaching, every benefit of understanding, every blessing had come to the nation of Israel. Every plan of God in the Old Testament, every ounce of revelation that he had given to the world had come through Israel. If they didn't have knowledge, it was because they were refusing to listen, not because they weren't told. As Paul continues on here, he's going to show them from, uh, more from some of these Old Testament quotes. He's going to quote from Moses and Isaiah. God had revealed to them that a people who didn't have the blessings, the privileges, would be used to shame them, to make them jealous and angry because of their refusal to believe, to heed his word. None of what was going on with them should have been a surprise to them. So he continues in verse 19. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Here we see another Old Testament quote, this time from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. From the song of Moses, before Moses died, telling the Israelites of the displeasure that God had with them. Because of their disobedience, because of them going after other idols and other nations, God will take a people who are not a nation, belong to no nation in particular, and use them to make the Jews jealous. He will take a nation without understanding. This is literally senseless or stupid about spiritual things and use them to shame the Israelites. Would this work? Of course it would. Because the Jews had been given every law and all the promises of God. And here, God takes a nation that knows nothing about him. People that lack any spiritual sense And he gives them what he had given to Israel, makes them his people. We saw examples of this back when we studied Daniel last year, when uh, when we saw the Israelites were taken captive by the Babylonians. God revealed to them that they would be punished by the Medo-Persians, by the Greeks and the Romans, using other nations to punish the nation of Israel. Remember, that was the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And as a part of that time, which is still going on. This is what is going on now with the Gentiles and the church. God has turned away for a time from the Jews and is focusing his attention on the Gentile nations. And we'll see this in greater detail when we get into chapter 11 in the next chapter. But what is the effect of this? It's the effect is to make them jealous, to bring about jealousy to the nation of Israel. God has taken what was first meant for them, first offered to them, and now given it to someone else. He has now offered it to the Gentiles instead. It's like a father who, his son is being very unruly, being very disobedient, and and the father gets frustrated with him and and finally says, you know what, I'm going to take those toys. If If you can't 
if you can't get along with your toys, I'm going to take your toys and I'm going to give them to charity. And he takes the toys and he gives them away. What effect would that have on the kids? Well, they would hate that. Now our toys were taken away. Well, that's kind of a situation here. But in that situation, that might be a rash decision by the father, but that's not what happened with God. God did not make a rash decision. He had revealed this long ago that he was going to do this, clear back in Moses' day. And that's not the only example. In verse 20, we see another Old Testament quote of the same concept, this time from Isaiah. Verse 20 says, And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. So here he's quoting from Isaiah 65. This concept ties back to what we saw at the very end of chapter 9 in verse 30, where it said, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? The Gentiles weren't pursuing righteousness. Yet they attained it thanks to the grace and the mercy and the sovereignty of God. God was found by those who were not even seeking Him, who didn't ask for Him. They weren't seeking to be pleasing to God by observing the law and trying to hold to the law. And yet, they found Him. They were being saved. And by coming to Him in faith. Back up in verse 17, he said, Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. This is... This has been Paul's point since the end of chapter 9. Faith is the avenue by which men are saved. Not privilege, not physical descent, not works, but it's faith in what God has revealed. What he has offered to all. So again, the Jews have no excuse. In the last verse of the chapter, we're going to get through it. I think, I hope we're on time. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know what this is? This is the picture of a loving and merciful God who is stretching out his hands to the people that he has chosen as his own. All the day long shows the patience of God as he continually reaches out to make provisions and provide blessings for his people. And how is he repaid? With disobedience and obstinance, it says. A people who refuse to do what he says and are contrary to what he has revealed. That was the pattern for Israel. Taking the blessings that God gave them and repaying his blessings with selfishness and disobedience. Why were the Jews condemned? We saw... In chapter 9, that God chooses whom he wishes, and he calls them to salvation. But is that why others aren't saved? Is that why others are condemned? No. Remember, those whom he chose for salvation were all in that mass of depraved humanity. And we talked about that pool of depraved humanity. All in the lump of those who were already on their way to condemnation. Anyone who isn't saved is, isn't saved because of their own failure to heed the gospel, to accept the free gift that he has offered to all. They have a responsibility, as do all of us, to heed the word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is essential for salvation. Salvation is found in no one else. It's found in no other message. It's found in no other variation of this message. 
There is one Lord and he is Lord of all. And therefore, there is only one way to be declared righteous before him. As the children of God, it is this message that we have been entrusted with to proclaim to the world. Does that mean that we all need to become missionaries? Does that mean that we all need to go out in twos and dress a certain way and go door to door? Not necessarily. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I believe that we all have opportunities that are right in front of us every day that we need to be taking advantage of. Coworkers, neighbors, family members, people sitting next to us on the airplane, in the coffee shop. Without hearing the gospel, how are they going to believe? Without someone to preach it to them, how are they going to hear? We come here each and every week and we worship, we fellowship, we hear the word of God being taught. Is this where we bring people to hear the gospel? We can, but we need to remember that this is primarily a time for believers to build up believers, for us to utilize our gifts and edify the body of Christ. We come here each and every week to build each other up, encourage one another, and equip one another. For what end? So that we can go out from here, so that we can be lights to the world, being witnesses of our faith wherever it is that we go. We have been entrusted with the most important message that has ever been given to the world. The most important message that anyone will ever be able to hear. And the question is, what do we do with it? What have we done with that message lately? When there are so many people who desperately need to hear it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these truths from the book of Romans and use them in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to take the message of the gospel to the lost, that we would be sharing it with everyone that will listen, that we would be bold with it, that we would be confident with it, and, Lord, that we would use it to honor you in in just seeing souls come to salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your work in salvation. We thank you for the blessings that it has brought in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would be used mightily by you to see others saved as well. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.